In emergency medicine, we have to take everybody. What standard am I going to be held to when I'm doing this? The first stage you're going to go through is denial. There are certain answers you don't take as legitimate. It causes a true euphoria, so I know it makes the patients happy. How many MRIs can you buy for a $5 million lawsuit? A lot. That is essentially an attempt to defraud. What an indictment of our industry. If you really need to dig deep for a defense, I would say drop your insurance, quit your job, run away, and start praying. The physicians did not understand what their responsibility was. That's a big surprise. Well, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, it's time for November Risk Management Monthly, and Rick's about to introduce our first topic, which is about how do you manage yourself when you get sued. The issue of how do you tolerate, manage yourself after you've been involved in a lawsuit. Some of you have struggled through this on your own, and recently there was a book written by a physician colleague who focuses on that. We have on the line Greg and our guest, Eileen Brenner, who wrote a book that was recently published. Eileen, welcome aboard. Thank you. What was the name of your book? It's How to Survive a Medical Malpractice Lawsuit. What was the genesis of it? Well, I had recently finished my case at trial where I won, and I was done. I was going to put it in a little place and not open it up again. And just a few months later, two of my close friends were sued, and it was clear that they didn't know what to do, and their cases seemed to me that they were being mishandled. And they weren't even aware of it. So it was seeing what they went through that made me realize if they have experienced this and then clearly other physicians are going to be in a position where they don't know what to do either. And I had knowledge to share, not just from my own case, but because I've grown up helping my dad out on his cases. He's a med mal attorney for the defense up in New York. And I've been working on his cases since I was like 14. He'd hand me EBTs and have me go through them and things like that. So I knew a lot of behind the scenes stuff that the average doctor doesn't know. And if I was ever unsure, I would ask my dad and my dad would always really back me up and say, no, no, you know what you're talking about. But if they want to call me, they can. And if he ever talked to them, it was really psychological that it'll be okay. And really the kind of things that an attorney does is a lot of it is just psychological helping the doctors out. So I just went ahead and proposed some articles to a bunch of magazines, one of which was Emergency Physicians Monthly, and they decided to run with it. The articles were so popular that people said, well, I would like more information about the deposition and all these sorts of things. So I expanded it into a book, and here it is. Eileen, you mentioned some of your friends were involved. Did they ultimately prevail? Were there some substantial emotional issues that you saw them going through? You kind of implied there were some procedural issues as well that were problematic that they just were not aware of. Yeah, there were a lot of procedural issues. In both cases, they had, in my opinion, clear conflict of interest. And in one situation, there were multiple defendants, including their employer, the hospital, and their attorney didn't seem to be all that anxious to do a defense that seemed to favor my friend. It seemed like they were protecting the hospital. And in my other friend's situation, their employer had just taken over. They were doing everything. I don't know that it was as much a clear conflict of interest, although there could have been one. But in her case, she wasn't getting involved in it. 
she was letting them do everything and that's just very dangerous and from the get-go they both had similar sorts of problems that didn't occur to them to be problems i want to comment on a couple of the chapters in the book one of them eileen has to do with how to choose the attorney yes. now you know in most cases you don't get to choose your attorney you get somebody from the insurance company, if you don't like that person, you can tell them you want a different person. Sure. But it, it's not common, at least in this region, my region of the United States, that a physician gets much input other than negative input into an attorney. Well, it depends. In my case, I was actually sued twice. The first I won at trial, second time was dropped after the deposition. The first time, I obviously didn't know any attorneys in Atlanta. But I was given a choice. I worked with my employer to talk with them about the different ones and their strengths and just to which one would be a good fit for me. So I did have some choice, actually, in my own. And most people don't, mostly because they won't know of anyone. However, my second case, I had an attorney. I liked him. I wanted him again, so I requested him. And my dad gets a ton of business because previous clients get sued again and they want him again. So if you know someone... You can request them if you don't know anyone, but then you feel that you're not being represented correctly, then my book can guide you into how to change your attorney. And I think I even say in the book that the most common situation is that you won't get to choose your attorney, but there are certain circumstances such as conflict of interest that you will want to change it. And if you happen to know someone that is accepted by your insurance company on their panel, then you want to request them you certainly can do that even if they try to prevent it because it's just not what they always do. You made a comment earlier I'd like to expand a little bit, and that has to do with conflict of interest. Now, yes. most docs who are in contract groups will have their own attorney and the hospital will have their own attorney. In certain cases, there's a joint defense arrangement and the danger of joint defense is, who is that attorney representing? Is it the doctor or is it the hospital? And I've seen that problem multiple times. It is a huge problem. I can't even tell you the number of stories that I have heard directly from my dad as to the things that hospitals do to manipulate the situation at the last second. And they do that at the detriment of the doctor, just stuff that shows up only at trial and you think you're working with the attorney and all of a sudden the hospital changes course. Now, in a lot of situations, those things have happened with separate attorneys and even still you have a problem. However, at least if you have your own attorney, then you can better protect yourself. But I have a lot of friends who are employees, either because they're in academics, they're employees of the hospital, or because they happen to work in a situation where they're an employee of the hospital. And in those situations, you are usually going to be attached to the hospital unless you insist otherwise. What about the comments you make in this book about can you handle or can you actually accept the stress and strain of a malpractice action? You call it coping with the medical malpractice lawsuit. And you invoke the uh, Kubler-Ross stages. Tell me about that a little bit. Well, the Kubler-Ross stages of death and dying, which many people may be aware of, seem to express really well the kind of things that go on with the physician when they're confronted with a lawsuit. In a way, it is a death. 
and the kind of stress level you're on is similar. So the stages seem similar. So just really quickly, the first stage you're going to go through is denial. And that's the most common response. I've even heard of physicians who dodge subpoenas. They think that something might be coming and they just don't answer the door. That's the ultimate denial. You really think you're not going to eventually get that piece of paper. But in their mind, the longer they can delay it, the better. Yeah, I once had a doctor who actually put his subpoena in a drawer and didn't tell anybody about it. And so finally, the court made a judgment without, wow. since he hadn't told anybody, and we had to go get the judgment vacated. The first thing a doc has to do is sort of man or woman up here. They do have yeah. to accept the subpoena and they, they do. do have to answer it. Absolutely. That's time limited. And that's just part of the denial. Other parts of the denial are even after the case is going, when your attorney asks you, I need you to do X, Y, and Z, and you just put it in a little corner and forget about it and hope you don't have to do anything, that's a form of denial too. And those types of things are going to hurt your case. So you're not helping yourself by getting stuck in these phases. If you don't work through it, then you're going to actually harm yourself. Anger is the next one, and this is one of the things that a lot of doctors never get out of. I've talked to some physicians about medical malpractice cases 15 years ago, and they're still angry, dripping with anger, and just have not gotten past it. And it's one of those things, again, that in your case, if you're angry and bitter, and you show that in court, jury is going to look very poorly upon you. They want someone who's controlled. They want to believe that you were able to be a good doctor and acting poorly and unprofessional in court is certainly going to hurt your case. No, there's no question that the anger syndrome continues over into a lot of people, and it starts to affect how they manage patients. This is well-known, and this sort of aggressive action now starting to view every patient as the enemy is a real problem. It is a problem because really patients aren't the enemy. And a lot of people were surprised when I said that I was actually a little sad after my case, after I won. And my explanation is, is that that patient really experienced a long recovery. Yeah, they're lucky to be alive, but still they went through a lot. And I wasn't mad at them for filing the lawsuit. I'm mad at the system in a sense, but I still wasn't mad at them. But a lot of people would be and take it personal and act like it's the patient that's the enemy. And every future patient that you see is a future lawsuit. And while that in a way can be true, if you do that, it really doesn't make you that kind, compassionate doctor that makes you a good doctor. By the way, you make comments in the book about going to trial and how you should look at trial. Yes. Uh, you want to talk about that? Because I don't think most people would think that how you dressed at trial was a big issue, but it is a big issue. Oh, it's huge. And I've had arguments with one of my friends about this because in her mind, what does it matter? You're a doctor, you're intelligent, you get up on the stand and you say smart things and that's all that matters. And even with the deposition, I told my friend they really should purchase a interview type suit and... She went on and on about how that's just a waste of money and it's totally unnecessary and what difference will it make? Well, the difference is a lot of attorneys sue everyone involved in the chart just so that they can turn them against each other. They don't necessarily plan on keeping everybody in the lawsuit. So when they go to depose you, you're not just someone they're trying to get information out of. They're going to see how well you're going to do at trial. And if you are really professional and you 
are able to counter all of their questions with the kind of responses that juries are going to like, and they don't want you there. And they are more inclined to drop you. If you come in a little disheveled, unprofessional, really casual, kind of intimidated, then the attorney may keep you in the case, even though they were never really planning on keeping you in the first place. They were just going to use you as a ploy to get at one of the other defendants. And at trial, it's really important. Every little thing can color how a jury views you. And if you're really disheveled, and my dad can tell you so many cases where his client looks horrible, and the jury said afterwards that, you know, we know this shouldn't matter, but we just think that any doctor who cares so little about his own appearance clearly might not be caring so much about the patient and their care. Well, it's interesting that we had a trial consultant many years ago on one of our cases took one look at the woman doctor involved, and she was gorgeous, and her husband was gorgeous, and they dressed beautifully. She said, lose that good-looking husband. Don't have him in there, because (laughs) 70 or 80 percent of people on juries are women. And she said, take off the jewelry, take off the rings, take off the watches. I think you use the analogy in your book, take off the Jimmy Choo's and look like the consummate vanilla professional. Yes too glitzy. You wear those super high heels that cost $600 and juries think that you have so much money that it doesn't matter what they do to you. And you just don't want to attract attention to those things. Even simple things like glasses. If you wear glasses, that can be very distracting, especially if you need them to read, taking them off, putting them on, taking them off, putting them on. If the jury's thinking about that, then everything you say is going in one ear and out the other. And as I say in my book, You, the client, are your own best expert. If you come off well and you teach the jury, then the jury is going to listen to you. If they're not listening to you from the get-go because they're so focused on some other minutia, then you're already losing the battle. Honestly, I tell people a simple strand of pearls, fake is fine, just something that looks nice but not glitzy, and normal work shoes, not four-inch heels that look much too expensive. And you should have a different outfit for each day. If it's a one-week trial, try to mix it up a little bit for multiple-week trials. But you still should look like you're going to an interview every single day. And with men, it's the same thing. Vary your ties and your shirts, and everything should be perfectly pressed and tucked in. And if you're overweight, make sure you have a suit that fits you, not something that you had from 10 years ago that is too tight and just doesn't look right. Eileen, I noticed in your book that you've divided it really into two sections. Section one is the road to trial. Section two is an ounce of prevention. And I've read it all, and I think you give some excellent examples in these sections about simple things you can do in advance because you never walk away with more money than you started out with. It just doesn't work that way. Pick one or two of those tidbits and give them to us so we can pass them on to our listeners. Do you mean just like I have a whole section on the things that make patients angry and how those little things are the easiest things to help prevent a lawsuit? Yeah, give us a couple of examples. Okay. Well, just first, the whole premise is what makes a lawsuit is not necessarily a bad outcome. Yes, a bad outcome is what can trigger it. It's really having patients and their families who are angry and upset and frustrated who feel there's no other way to resolve these problems other than to sue you. So if you can address the anger part, 
you can't do that much about the bad outcome. Some things you can do, some things you can't, but it's the anger part that you can address. So think about what kind of things can make patients angry. We all know long wait times can make patients upset, but they also kind of expect that to a certain degree. So if you work in an office as opposed to an ER, there are things that you can do in your waiting room to make the time pass faster and just being considerate about patients' time, whether it's movies or letting patients know that there's going to be wait. A lot of ERs are instituting wait times and a lot of doctors don't like that because it means that patients will shop different ERs for the one with the shortest wait time and it won't be such a short wait time anymore. That being said, it's great for patients because they can see right there which of the hospitals nearby is going to take less of their time, and that therefore makes them much happier. But there are other things like how available you are to your patients. Have most doctors checked and called their own doctor? Every now and then I have to make the calls myself from the emergency department. I can tell you a good amount of them are rude and they don't always work and you have to call multiple times and this is when a doctor is calling so when a patient can't reach the doctor they assume that it was the doctor's fault not the answering services fault that when they didn't get a call back also things that other doctors can do is let's just say a patient comes to the emergency department or comes to your office and you didn't really like the care that the other doctor gave well don't go to the patient and tell them invent them that to them and say, oh, gosh, that other doctor, they just did the wrong thing, so I'm going to do X, Y, and Z to help you. That doesn't help anyone because all that does is stir them up, get them upset, and if anything further goes wrong, then you've just helped yourself get on that lawsuit as not just that other doctor. But it's even further than that. It's peer review. When you tell patients that, in your opinion, they may not have had the best care, then you've denied that other doctor something called peer review where they get to defend themselves. No one got to defend themselves when you went off and complained to the patient. And that's one of the top reasons that patients give as to why they decided to file a lawsuit is my doctor told me I got bad care. It's not a professional thing to do. It's also not good for yourself. So that's something you can do as well. I think we've discussed this previously on Risk Management Monthly the fact that bad-mouthing another doctor or another healthcare professional should be probably a fireable offense because what you've done is you've just thrown a match the gasoline can and all they need if they were disappointed with results is just a little encouragement and then everybody's in court with the issue. One more example of things that will help prevent a lawsuit simply is good communication with your patients. A lot of times patients are so shell-shocked that they don't pay attention to what you say. And while it may be annoying for a physician to have to say the same thing over and over, saying it in different ways, reinforcing it, pictures, a lot of ERs and offices, you have a little dry erase board, you can make a picture, you can draw on their discharge papers, something that's going to reinforce what you talked about. Because I can't tell you how many patients will just out and out deny that they ever heard something, which they did hear. And that's not because they're lying. It's because they weren't paying attention at the time they should have been paying attention, having other relatives there, sitting down when you talk to patients. Sometimes when you stand, it's intimidating and they're not focusing on what you're saying. So if you sit down, you're their equal and they're sometimes more willing to hear. They also have a perception that you spoke to them for a lot longer. And again, 
the anger quotient is the less time you see them, the happier they'll be. Oddly, there's this weird disconnect with patients. On the one hand, they want a really short wait time. On the other hand, they also want you to spend a half hour with them, which means that other patients would never get a short wait time, but that's what they want. And it is part of your job to at least have the perception that you're spending more time with them and that they're really understanding what you're telling them so that they can get proper instructions. And if they do understand it, the simple things like ask them what they just heard or repeat back to them some of the things that they told you in the history. If you repeat something back to them, if you phrase your question in such a way that you've included some of their words, then they know you were paying attention to them. And a lot of times patients just want validation and that's it. It's not even about the sickness so much as they want someone to listen to them. Let me take a little tangent here on this waiting time business. I do see these hospitals posting their waiting times on some kind of these automated billboards. What an indictment of our industry where everybody knows when you go to an ER, you're going to wait. So now we have the battle of the wait times going up there. It's a reflection of the fact that we have a terrible reputation that is industry-wide about making patients wait, particularly that they're sick, they don't feel good, I got a cut finger kind of thing, and they're in the least mood to wait. What doctors can do about that is, and I think, Greg, you may have mentioned this. I'm going to give you credit for it, whether you deserve it or not. (laughs) (laughs) The The story of of my life, right? Yeah. The idea of, as you introduce yourself, always apologize for the wait. Always say, hi, I'm Dr. So-and-so, and and I apologize for you having to wait. It's irrelevant whether they've waited one nanosecond. Just by the fact that you've said that acknowledges that you are concerned about them and that you would like to see them just as quickly as possible. The other thing, too, is there's a big focus on door-to-provider times, and I do think that that really, really matters. And hospitals are measuring that. Doctors are being compared with their peers on that. And it's clearly something that is an acquired skill for you to go in there and quickly say, hi, I'm Dr. So-and-so. I understand you're having some this or that. Let me get you comfortable and get some things started. I'll be back to see you in a little bit. That mode of practice... I think is very, very effective in terms of diffusing some of the sources of hostility from patients in the emergency department. It's called lick and promise medicine, Rick, and the good docs have done that for years. Obviously, we can't go through the whole book, but I do want Eileen to comment on one last subject, which I know a lot of our listeners are interested in. You use the phrase liability risk with the use of physician extenders. Now, I think the term physician extenders has become no longer politically correct. You refer to them as mid-level providers, physician extenders. I'm not sure, you know, what's politically correct or not. I use both terms. The real question here is, what does it mean? To what extent are you liable? And as you say, you've got a little chapter or a little section of that that says, how should you run your practice? So tell us, what should we do? Well, it's not so clear cut. On the one hand, if you go and see every single patient that the PA sees, A, you're not using the PA's time very well because you're having to see every single patient. There's this weird quirk that says that once you've seen a patient, you are completely liable because now it's you, the physician, who have taken over the case. On the other hand, there's a lot of doctors who are very wary of the fact that their jobs are making them sign the PA's charts even though they haven't seen the patient themselves. And while that sounds that it's not good liability-wise, it actually isn't as bad as you think because the PA, if you're working in a state like mine where 
the PAs have the right, according to the legislature, to practice independently. They can go to one of those CVS clinics and they can practice there and they don't need a doctor around, according to the law. Well, if that's your state and that's now the majority of states in the nation, then the PA or the nurse practitioner, they are the ones to incur the liability as long as you fulfill certain requirements. One is they have to be working within their scope of practice, which is defined by the state usually based on their own board, but each state has their own scope of practice. They can't exceed that, and you can't force them to exceed it. So if there's something that they're not supposed to do, let's just say a lumbar tap is excluded, and you've asked them to do one, then you're making them exceed their scope of practice. If anything goes wrong, you're going to be liable. On the other hand, there's also things that the PA may have to do, if they feel it, they need to have the ability to call you or to consult you. If you were in the building or even available by phone in some areas, they'll just have a doctor available by phone. Then as long as they had the chance to ask you questions and consult a doctor and you were available to come in or see that patient if necessary, then that fulfills the requirements. And then again, you're not individually liable. If however, you're the employer that's another story. Then there's a whole different kind of liability called vicarious liability where you're just liable because they're your employee. But just talking for the average physician, as long as you fulfill the requirements asked of your job, whether it's signing the charts or reviewing them when you're told to review them, then your liability is more limited as far as getting these cases to court. And I've spoken to a number of pretty high-level directors at a number of these different large emergency physician groups who use physician extenders and have you just sign off on the charts. And they tell me while they have occasionally been sued in these cases, they all seem to get dropped because the physician was fulfilling their requirements, even though they didn't actually see the patient. According to the laws, they don't have to. It varies state to state. And believe me, the physicians did not understand what their responsibility was. And then, of course, there's the fiduciary aspect of this. That is, if the physicians are receiving money as a part of the PA's work, then that's tied in to that remuneration question. And attorneys like to show that to the juries if they can. And that can always be a problem. Rick, any other last comments? Yeah, well, actually, I'd like to do one last area. It's the, what's the recommendations for the physicians? The lawsuit's over. Independent of whether you won or lost, my concern is that you become a different doctor. The patient becomes the enemy, but you also start testing more and thinking that that's expected of you, and you become a less happy physician. Eileen, you got any recommendations for how to kind of not let this screw you up? for an extended period of time in terms of emotionally and in terms of how you practice? Well, of course, every person is different. But actually, in the book, there's two different psychological theories that I tie together. One is the Kubler-Ross, which I described earlier. And then there's the Maslow's. He has a whole different set of stages, these five models of need. And they really explain very well the whole defensive medicine aspect. Essentially, when your security is threatened, when the core parts of your career, your life are threatened, you're going to unconsciously do everything you can to protect them. And that is going to lead to those less desirable reactions. The way to get past that is to fulfill the need. So that can happen in a lot of different ways. But if you're feeling threatened because these patients are out to get you, then 
seeking counseling, working through your anger, working through your frustrations, you need to move through. You need to feel sadness. Don't feel like you're not supposed to have emotions just because you're a doctor. You need to acknowledge them, work through them. And then once you can work through them, you have a chance at going back to where you were. However, a lot of doctors, knowing that there's the possibility of them being sued right around the corner, are going to have more problems than others in this regard. And that's why I personally don't feel that medical malpractice reform in its current state will fix defensive medicine because it's more than just a cap that's going to affect whether or not you do defensive medicine. It's a deep psychological, a deep emotional problem that you feel like the patient is the enemy. And there is no easy answer, but I'd say that dealing with the emotions, not being stuck in denial, not putting it in a little box and not dealing with it. You've got to deal with these problems. And a lot of times talking to other doctors who've been through it can help the healing. Talking to a professional Your lawyer, if you have a very compassionate lawyer, can help you try to work through these problems. And that's one of the aspects of hopefully having a good attorney that is not just good in the courtroom, but also very compassionate. Those aspects are the kind of things that can help you move past it and continue to practice like a good doctor. Well, Eileen, thanks very much for taking the time with us. Where can we get a hold of your book if we want to learn more? Well, there's a few ways. One is you can buy it directly from me and get it autographed at my website, www.drbrenner.blogspot.com or else if you just want to go on Amazon, you just type in my name, Eileen Brenner, I-L-E-N-E-B-R-E-N-N-E-R and the book will pop up and you can buy it just directly through Amazon. Well, terrific. I wish you much success with it. I do think it does cover a very important topic and I appreciate your being with us. Well, I appreciate you having me. Thank you very much. Thanks, Eileen. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Okay, let's get into some letters. We haven't done letters for a while. We got a few letters. Interesting. We get letters. Okay. You know, when you say that, most people who are listening have no idea what the heck you're... That was the Perry Como, Como show. show. Perry what? Como. Yeah, exactly. What? This guy has no idea who Perry Como oh, I know is. Yeah, Perry yeah. Como is, but they, I didn't know he had a show. Yes. He's a singer. Yeah, he had the Perry Como show. Right, for he, years he, on TV. You know what his occupation was before he got into professional He was a singing? barber. Jesus, guys, just a fund of knowledge. A barber. Yeah, barber. In, in Ohio, I think, as a matter of fact, wasn't it? Yeah. Dear Perry, would you be so kind to... Take our request and sing the song we love best. But, or the read a letter of mine. Right, right. Okay. All right. Okay, first letter, Brian Romeus. You know, we ask these guys if we can use their names with their permission, and Brian said, absolutely. He also said, but this don't make me look bad. <laughs> you know, that's going to be a, Brian, cha- a challenge. Brian, that's tough after this letter, but go ahead, Rick. It was written to Mel. Mel yeah, so to do it? Brian was resident at UCLA, and I was a couple of years ahead of him, and so he's out at Kaiser now, but here's his question, and this is important, actually, because we're about to institute the same thing at LA County, and I'll tell you all about it in a second. Our ED has instituted a doctor working in triage. His job is mainly to lay eyes on patients and write preliminary orders so that the workup can be initiated early. What liability does this doctor have for the orders he writes or she writes? His assessment is merely a triage evaluation, no better than the triage RNs working them up there. So what standard am I going to be held to when I'm doing this? Wait a second. He's Dr. So-and-so. He's seen a patient who's come in. He has a responsibility to take a history, do the physical, and at least get the patient started correctly. If there's something that happens in the back, will the other doctor also be named? Yes, 
But don't think, because you only got them going, you're not going to be included in the suit. If I was plaintiff's counsel, I would make sure that person was included in the suit just so they would testify against their friend in the back. You have the same responsibility as anybody else who touches the patient. Just assume your name will sit there with everybody else. If that's true, this is a really bad idea for you to do in terms of your litigation risk because you can crack through many more patients. This is just get them started. Then all the stupid docs out there make the mistakes and you're going to get named on the case? Well, of course you're going to get named. Uh, Wait a second. Hurt me. This is a very simple system. If your name is on the piece of paper, they're at least going to name you until they've found out what you did or didn't do and whether an expert will say you did or didn't do it correctly. So don't think that by having another guy in the back finish the case up that you won't be involved. You will be involved in most states of the United States. Yeah, I think that's pretty obvious. I think so, too. Hurt me. I mean, I don't think even that's a good question, Brian. Oh, come on. (laughs) Now, the reason uh, is because I'm interested in this is we're about to institute this because our wait times have been very long and then CMS and other people came through and said, you suck. So we're going to have a dock in triage because they want us to touch and feel and smell everybody within an hour. The only way we can do it is a triage with a dock. Well, you know, you have a model. Harbor General, when they got into trouble, hired CEP, California Emergency Physicians, to be their doctors in triage because there was these protracted waits in the emergency department. And you see all of these things, bad things happening in the emergency department. Well, Diane Birnbaumer waxed eloquent on this story and said the only way you get things done at her place is to be in violation of some state or federal agency that is going to threaten to close you down. It it wasn't Diane. It was somebody's name who's similar to Diane's. Similar to Diane. It wasn't Diane. Uh, Bob Hochberger, you didn't hear that. Not that you listened to this thing, but it wasn't Diane. It was simply similar to Diane. Hey, speaking of waiting times, I don't know if you saw this. Press Ganey recently reported out the average waiting time I assume it's from their client hospitals. Four hours and seven minutes. Four hours and seven minutes. Average? Average waiting time. I thought this was atrocious. It's going up. Last year, I think this is data from maybe 2009 or something like that. The year before, whenever they had data, it was four hours. It was going up seven minutes. How do they define waiting time? Well, I don't know, but it's irrelevant. So, you know, it's, <laughs> this doesn't make four s- hours is a long time no matter what. You should be out of there. Listen, I have to tell you this. In our ER, if you are discharged, you go home, the average time was 2.5 hours. 2.5. Our goal was two and 2.5. And here we have a waiting time average of four hours, please. I'd like to know what these hospitals, because ASIP sent out their little newsletter yesterday. The I don't remember what it's called, but it comes via email. Yeah. And they said in there that the wait times have gone up, but they were talking about average wait times from 27 minutes to 39, something like that. Minutes. Well, I guess Which we I couldn't believe. Like, I, who has a 29-minute wait time? I guess we do uh, need... Hello, we hey. did in Chelsea, Michigan. But no, I guess we yeah. do need some definitions here. Yes. Well, yes. let's just assume it's long. Okay. okay. Yeah. Well, actually, I'm going to pull it up now, isn't it? All right. That was your buddy... Brian. 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 James Heisen. James Heisen. 
Hey, guys, keep up the good work, although you forgot to do Wine of the Month for the April issue of Risk Management oh. Monthly. How about doing some sweeter wines, such as Rieslings? I wrote down my favorites, Manischewitz, Mogan David, <laughs> and Boone's Farm. Yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Okay. Anyways, liked your comments about passing patients on between shifts. I tend to start from scratch with most patients that are passed on to me and treat them as new patients to me. Too scary otherwise. I'm sure we all know of some horror stories of patients passed on to us, and then when we retake the history and this can send us into a whole new direction than what the first doctor started. But fundamentally, he's talking about pass-ons. So, guys, have a little chat on pass-ons and the dangers, and do you start them over or whatever? I think it depends on the individual case. The most common pass-on these days is the patient who's being worked up with the six-hour protocol for chest pain. And they've done everything, and they're waiting for the last set of enzymes to come back. I don't rework up all those cases. Listen, listen they're not called enzymes anymore. Uh, yeah, markers. <laughs> markers. They're called cardiac markers. Markers. You're dating Sorry, yourself. But, uh, well, good, I'm dating somebody. <laughs> and I understand that they're markers, but I think that is clearly the most common case which is passed along these days. I don't think you have to re-see all of those, but... You have to understand that if you're taking over the responsibility, you do have to kind of review what's been done and decide it's a good idea to send them home. Now, the other classic pass on is when they've got a patient going, they've almost acted like a triage officer, set off some studies, done a few things. Those have to be done from beginning to end. I think the point that we were talking about is you probably ought to do rounds with the next guy coming on, physically see the patient take a look at it and it's interesting when another physician is coming on and he asks you a few questions like what do you expect me to do with this answer this answer and this answer you realize you already have all the information you know to either admit him or send him home and it probably doesn't have to be passed on but i think the worst thing is when you've got a family and a patient who don't know that their doctor is gone and now you step into the room that's not good you know, that's ridiculous, and yet I dare say that in 99% of the emergency departments in this country, that's how pass-ons occur. Oh, your doctor's off-duty now. What? We started a thing. Person to person, I'm introducing you to the oncoming doctor. This is Dr. Henry. He's going to be taking over. He knows that we're waiting for the serum spinach level to come back. And right. It's just reasonable. It would be gentlemanly. It would be what you would expect. And now the nurses do it. Instead of having these little coffee clats in the center there looking at the charts, it's one-on-one with the nurses. They each have four patients, and they go in there and do that because it's what you would like to have done to yourself or your family in terms of how you would like to be managed. With regards to these pass-ons, I think we've mentioned this before, and I don't want to belabor it, but you know, I think if you're waiting for a X to come back, the doctor who saw the patient could say, fine, I'll fill out the aftercare. I'm going to assume X is negative, And in the event that it isn't, the ball is now in your court. Right. So they take care of the aftercare instructions and everything is done. And, so and sign the chart. Yeah. Right. And, right. Your name is not even on the chart. You're just saying, yes, it was normal. No, it was not normal kind of thing. So I don't think that that's unreasonable at all. But on these pass-ons, they're considered to be a high-risk kind of issue by the Joint Commission. So the idea is now to have a protocol that says, how do you do pass-ons in a very formal way? I don't think that we can argue with that. It is a patient safety issue. It's certainly a patient satisfaction issue and a quality of care issue. I think the medical legal side effects of this are probably the least of the detriments in pass-ons. It really is bad public relations 
to appear suddenly and say, hi, I'm the new doc, and they just have never met you. We did a great paper in the primary care literature that looked at what happens when doctors go on vacation and another doctor is taking their place. And it was fascinating. So the patient comes in, sees the new doctor. The new doctor finds all of this stuff that was not found by the mm-hmm. old doctor because the old doctor just kept on saying, oh, he's a thyroid, he's a thyroid, he's a thyroid, and then, you know, we're checking the TH. And they kind of had blinders on to this person as a totality. And it was fascinating, all of the new stuff that the second doctor picked up who had never seen them before starting from scratch. And I think that that would equally apply to the emergency department. How many times have you gone into a case and seen it and said, what the heck was he thinking of? Mm-hmm. This isn't obviously a that, 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 that. So there is value in a fresh set of eyes and just coming on the shift, you're more into it kind of thing. Particularly with a finding. What I found is when they were working up, let's say, an abdominal pain. Now I walked in. They actually haven't touched the belly of that patient for two hours now. I walk in with him. I put my hand on the belly and say, that's peritonitis. This person needs to go to the operating room. And quite frankly, if that doc had retouched the belly at that moment, he probably thought it too. But there's no question that a fresh set of eyes can be useful occasionally. We should have two docs see every patient. It might slightly increase the bill, but (laughs) it will be better. Well, you know, the same thing's come up with two doctors looking at mammograms. Two doctors looking at mammograms is much better than one. They say, well, we can't afford it kind of thing. Well, geez, how long does a doctor spend looking at a mammogram? Like 10 seconds? Can't read 200 of these an hour now. Well, we can do 50 an hour. I'm going to have to move down from the high-end BMW <laughs> to the mid-range. Uh, excuse me, Dr. Herbert, don't you have two doctors looking at every patient now? Yes, we do. <laughs> Greg... Thank you. Good. In case of you're any federal investigators listening. <laughs> Actually, in truth, we have about seven doctors because we keep them there for about 12 shifts. So we have a lot of people. So a yeah, lot but... of people take a look. Good. Yeah, you could even say we're, we're keeping here here to get seven different Good opinions. opinions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll get this right. <clears throat> yeah, exactly. How about a letter from David Bruner? Elvis, you want to do David? Yeah, David asks, what is the individual provider's responsibility slash liability in cases where the patient does not provide you with truthful information? This is actually based on something we did in MRAP, which was a case of a young girl who came in who said she wasn't sexually active, and as time went through, turned out she had PID, and she died from it. She had a horribly bad case, very rare, and she died from it. A lot of people have asked, She said she wasn't sexually active, and maybe that would have radically changed the way the doctors thought. Does this help us in any way, Greg, if somebody says they lie to us for whatever reason? Does it help? Yeah. You and I both understand that a lot of the information we get is bad or could be bad. I've stopped asking whether people are sexually active. I only want to know if you're pregnant. And I've delivered enough products of immaculate conception during my career that there are certain answers you don't take as legitimate When a 17-year-old said, I've never had a drug, I've never done this or that, that's fine. But you're going to ask the question, and it's always going to remain a possibility somewhere down the road. It's not that I'm accusing anyone of lying, but I think it needs to be kept in mind. Now, there's lots of information which is not emotionally charged that if they do give you bad information like, well, doctor, I'm sure I had my appendix out when I was 15, I don't know what you can do about that. A doctor, particularly in our position, has to have reasonable reliance on the information given. I'm not taking any drug which would cause me to bleed. You know what? If they are, I can't know that. 
I think there are obvious traps, which you and I know, and we always assume that we may be getting bad information. But the other stuff, the courts have held, by the way, that the physician has a right to rely on the information given by patients. What else can you do? Because about probably 80% of what we do comes from history, maybe 15% from laboratory testing. Another bit comes from the physical exam. But you know what? We do have to depend on what patients say to us most of the time. Well, here's my take. I think that you would expect a 12-year-old to lie about their sexual activity. I mean, you would be kind of naive not to. A 25-year-old or 30 or 35-year-old would not be expected to lie about their sexual activity unless they were a nun. Right. Or something like that right. where it would be considered to be not, not cool. <laughs> Sister Mary Catherine. Yes, exactly. exactly. So, She's the one who had the long ruler, too, remember? Ooh, good. So I do think that all lying is not equal. And I think if somebody who is an adult like a 35 or 40-year-old woman said, no, I don't have sex when in fact she does, you know, there are some people that do this routinely, and I think it's a little insulting. Every person who comes in, no matter what they say, I had five uteruses removed. Fine, we're still doing a pregnancy test on you. She Uh, had five uteruses? (laughs) Yes, she did. They were all removed. Every one of them was removed. Because I remember two patients, actually, who complained about being billed for a pregnancy test when they had had surgical hysterectomies. Maybe you could explain and say, listen, sometimes they don't really remove all of this uterus. They only remove part of it or something like that. Give them a decent excuse, but to just ignore them as mature, reasonable adults, I think, is not fair either. I would put down patient specifically denies. And if they're lying, then there's some consequences. But I don't think that you were negligent because you just ignored what they told you. Well, it kind of depends on the problem you're working up. If it's a gynecologic problem in a woman in a reasonably reproductive age, she may not want to be talking about intercourse because... Say what? What's that? What'd you say? Intercourse. In, like like that? Yeah, yes, like that, Rick. Sometimes you have to apologize in advance. I've certainly done this to the parents of teenagers when I've said, we always check this. You know, I'm sure it's going to be negative. And by the way, it isn't always negative. Mm-hmm. But I think that you're right. We come up with a reasonable explanation why we still do it. But you know what? We still do it. And I don't think that's a crime. Well, I like the we always do it. It's the royal we. It's the royal we. Exactly right. All right. Let's move on here to who's next. John Roth sent us a letter. He wants to know, Greg, yes. whether insurance companies have or believe that there are certain things that are beyond the charge for every specific symptoms. He said, I'm interested in obtaining what the insurance companies are feeling regarding the must addressed history and physical questions for per symptom or diagnosis. I don't think there is such a thing, John. I think that nobody's codified that in terms of this is what you must put down. That's what's called being a doctor. Is last well, it is. But to some extent, this is the cowardice of the insurance companies. And I've been asked before to look at this question. And most insurance companies, when I suggest things to them, back off. They do not want to be requiring certain elements. But I can see at some point in time, an insurance company laying out a set of yeses and nos. If they've got X, you do Y. Now, we can all say, well, that's cookbook medicine. It's overstating it. You know what? There's a reason why we do get sued. And sometimes it's because we've committed malpractice. Although the insurance companies, I've never met one that does this at this point in time. I don't know why a far-thinking company might not try it, at least experimentally, and see over five years whether it did decrease their rate. Well, it's just so much easier for them to say, do thorough charting. 
and not be specific. Right. And that's useless. It's like saying obvious, you missed the diagnosis. That doesn't help us at all. David Wirtz. David Wirtz said, I just won, if you can call it that, a med mal uh, suit two days ago. It was a case I think you guys heard a little bit about where the hospital didn't include the radiology prelims in the record and instead just gave the final reports of x-rays and ultrasounds, which included the phrase CT recommended. Anyway, it went all the way to the jury and involved a six-week-old girl, which made it a tough case to defend. There was a verdict for the defense, which included myself, a pediatric surgeon and a radiologist. Listening to you guys on Risk Management Monthly allowed me to get past my feelings of being pissed off at the system, accept it for what it was and concentrate on the task at hand. Incidentally, the expert who testified against my care of the six-week-old girl who ultimately had a bowel obstruction from an enteric duplication cyst see that all the time was an adult gastroenterologist who hadn't touched a child in 20 years. So thanks, Dave. So basically, Dave said, we made him feel better, and that makes me feel good. That, that makes me feel good, too. However, Dave points out something very important. The court systems vary across the country, and if this judge allowed an adult gastroenterologist to speak to a problem in a six-week-old child, and he admits that he has not taken care of children that period of time, the system is fundamentally flawed that would allow that to happen. The other thing is, why would a gastroenterologist be speaking to the standard of care of an emergency doctor? That makes no sense to me. Well, sorry, but I find what you've told me when we first began this program and keep telling us that this is... Maybe game is the wrong word. It is a bit of a game, but this is business. And if you can do what David did here, which is, okay, now I understand the rules. It's a business and get down to the task at hand, which is to defend myself and not get too emotionally involved. I think what he's telling us, it makes it a hell of a lot easier to get through than just saying, I, this is not fair. It's not fair. At some point you have to say, okay, it's not fair. Now let's get down to the business at hand. And it sounded like he did that. And Greg, I think you helped this man out getting through well, what listen, otherwise would man, suck. I can't tell you how proud I am that he actually put this in some perspective. All I can tell you is most doctors have a very hard time putting being sued in any sort of emotionally clear perspective. Although I must be the devil's advocate. David won here. Oh, yeah, I'm sure he wouldn't be feeling as good as if he lost. <laughs> yeah, I feel it really bad now that <laughs> lost. And you guys are totally worthless in terms of it. I still feel bad. Yeah, the point yeah. is, we've heard yeah. before, last month we win most of the time. So most of the time you're going to win. The next one we've got is an avid listener. That's how he describes himself. But we're asked not to use his name, so we won't. Okay, Dr. Hoffman, we won't do that. <laughs> no, no, it's not Dr. <laughs> Hoffman. Here's the question, and it's a terrific and very important question, is what's said here. Last week, I went to work at 10 p.m. When I arrived in the department, there were 18 patients in the waiting room, another nine to be triaged, and a 4.5-hour wait to be seen which, if Dr. Bucata was correct earlier on, is sort of average in the country. Our charge nurse had made several attempts with hospital administration to be closed to EMS traffic due to safety and patient volume issues, but was told she could not. There is supposed to be a process in place to evaluate the volume, see what happens, additional nursing staff, resources can be called in. And by the way, I want to make sure in this letter we get back to calling in more physicians. But ultimately, this process usually dissolves into a stern no from administration. When asked to go on bypass, how do we deal with the following? And then there's a list of questions the doctor wants taken care of. The risk to patients because of volume. Gentlemen, any comments about the risk to patients? It goes up. If there is too many patients and it's overcrowded, there are more mistakes made. 
So there's no doubt about that. Here's the problem. In a lot of hospitals, we tend to have an urban bias on this panel. Let's say you're in Keokuk, Iowa. You are the hospital. There's maybe one other hospital 20 miles away. During that 20-mile interval, there are things that you can intervene on and save. Be careful now. Sometimes delayed medical care in that department may be better than no medical care at all. Although I think you have to make the distinction, is this occurrence very atypical? You've had the hemophiliac bus accident, or is this happening You know, three times a week? If it's happening three times a week, then there's some other questions that you need to ask, like what backup plan have you put into place? I think he's talking about a recurring situation, and how do they as an ER group deal with this. Right. And of course, administration is not down there at these moments. It's always turning to stool somewhere around 9 p.m. And if it happens every day, then what are you doing about it? I think the risk to patients goes up, but the answer is not simple. And that is, we're all going to have that one night or two nights a year, which is the total train wreck. What are you going to do on a day-to-day basis? By the way, the risk to staff members and their licenses due to this volume. He asks in here, have I ever seen cases related just to the volume? And what I would say is, most of the cases I see in some way or other have some volume component. It's not very often we actually see a case where the emergency doc is seeing one patient that day or one patient that hour. There's always a volume component, but I think it's very hard to quantitate what that volume component is. And by the way, I don't know any plaintiff's counsels who emphasize or give you a break because the volume was up that night. I just never seen that. Do you know of any cases where a physician, a emergency physician has been sued, it's been clearly overwhelming, and they have countersued the hospital or administration using this argument, look, I asked you to come in, I called the administrator, you didn't, and the poop at the fan, and so I'm blaming you. That's called a third-party action. I've never seen the doctor third-party the hospital on one of those issues. There's more to this letter, but we don't have time this month. We're going to have to do it next month. We've got to finish off with an interview here. Let's go. Okay, well, continuing with our interviews of folks who gave cool talks at the 2010 ASEP Scientific Assembly in Lost Wages, we've got Greg Moore on the line. Greg is an MDJD and did a talk called Beware the New Hotbed of Litigation, and that title I thought was pretty provocative. And Greg is at Madigan Army Medical Center up in, is that Tacoma, Greg? Yes. Okay. And as soon as I think of the word Madigan, i got to say a shameless plug to my friends Joe Littner and Maria Hugie, who year after year, come up to the Whistler course and make major contributions. And in fact, Joe Littner does also a lot of medical legal work as well. Joe is an MD without the JD. But in any case, Greg, welcome aboard. Greg Henry's on the line. We're going to call Greg Henry Greg the Older, and you'll be Greg the Younger so we can differentiate. We've got Mel Herbert on the line, and Ricky Babalu is our engineer. So, Greg, why don't you distill down for us what that talk was about? I frequently, like Greg Henry does as well, I'm exposed to a lot of cases around the nation, uh, malpractice cases. So I kind of start to see trends and new things coming up in areas that become lawyers' favorites. And I gathered those together, those cases, and presented them kind of as a warning for everyone. Greg, you're actually working. This is Greg the Elder. You're a part of the Army at this point in time. You're a commissioned officer. 
No, I'm a civilian worker who works at a residency in the Army. They like to get a few people that are there all the time and stable because the Army physicians get deployed and they come and go, so it offers stability to a program. Okay, very good. So tell us about where things are going from your perspective. Really, this is kind of what areas have been sort of popular with the lawyers lately. One of the first areas I went over was a couple cases of dilaudid overdose. One, an alcoholic that gets a study. I believe he got six milligrams of dilaudid. People didn't keep an eye on him and he had a respiratory arrest. Another was an elderly person that only got two milligrams of dilaudid sent to CAT scanner and respiratory arrested. So the first thing I did was highlight to be careful with this drug and monitor people. I've seen at least six or seven cases in the last year of this very similar thing. I think the drug tends to be variable in its efficacy and how it hits people. And so I'd start low and then go higher. Are we using more dilaudid? Because I never have used much of it, and I see a lot of people using it. Do we know if people are just using it more, therefore we're seeing more complications? No, a lot of people are using that now. Mel, I tend to be a morphine guy. You know, I'm from the old school, but I'll tell you, everybody's using dilaudid now. And I think one of the reasons we're seeing more cases is simply because so much of it is being used. And quite frankly, I see cases where the Dilaudid is blamed and the Dilaudid is not the cause of the problem with the patient. Well, you know, I've heard some people kind of arguing back and forth, what's the equivalency between Dilaudid and morphine? And I must admit, I'm from old school. I guess there are some reasons to use that drug over morphine, but I'm ignorant of those reasons. I mean, I know about histamine release and that kind of stuff, but I'm not quite sure what has made this drug grow in popularity. There may be reasons. I'm just ignorant of them. I've actually had it in a surgery myself, and I tell you that it causes a true euphoria. So I know it makes the patients happy if that tends to lead physicians that way. Personally, I'm like you guys. I'm a big morphine believer, but there's times where I know someone's been unhappy, dysphoric, like with a kidney stone. They've had horrible pain and a horrible experience, and then I will tend to reach for it because I feel like they deserve to be happy after suffering. (laughs) Give us another example of where things are going, the newer trends in suit. One of the things that I am seeing a lot of, almost an explosion and 100% loss for the physician is with following up of tests. X-rays, you know, there's several X-ray cases, blood cultures that get called contaminant, not followed up on. Of course, the person gets septic and dies. And also, there was one case I saw where the patient just said to the physician, hey, doc, can you order a PSA level on me because I haven't had it checked in years and it was very elevated. It wasn't followed up on and the patient died of prostate cancer. So these are becoming very much favorite of lawyers. They go back to the department. Of course, there's a protocol. Everyone said this is the way we do it. And the protocol is violated and it's a slam dunk for the lawyer. Yeah, I'm not sure why an emergency doc would be doing a PSA on patients. Sort of the bottom line is that's what your family doc is for. And if you're not going to see the patient back and you don't have an ironclad system of following these things, I'm not sure you should be dabbling in long-term care of patients from the emergency department. Yeah, I completely agree with you, but I think we've all had those patients that ask you, can you send off a cholesterol level on me? Can you send this off? My doc wants me to get it, and I haven't got it. And these cases were put there to scare people that you are taking on a significant amount of risk and liability when you try to be a good guy. I think one thing you can do about that is note on the chart, test taken, 
patient told to call their physician for the results of that test. Dr. Smith is a family doc. Chart will be sent to Dr. Smith, patient to contact Dr. Smith for results. Because if it can go wrong, it will go wrong. And I don't see any reason to delve into that if you don't have to. Well, the other thing, too, is is that, Greg, the younger you're in a military setting where nobody pays, I assume, for their care because they're all military dependents, and throwing in a PSA or cholesterol would not be unreasonable request because they're not paying anyway. But in the community practice, you can't be ordering a cholesterol on somebody who's there for a sprained ankle or a PSA because that's going to be put onto the person's bill for their supposedly ER visit. And the hospital is charged substantially for these tests. So I think that the circumstances somewhat determine the likelihood for this risk to occur. But when you're talking about things like cultures, I kind of don't like it when my colleagues order these cultures because they're never around to follow them up. And then you get a urine culture, come back, and lo and behold, what is it? It's called E. coli. That's a big surprise. And it's like maybe so-so related to being killed by Bactrim. And the fact is, is that there's not a good relationship between these sensitivity results and what happens clinically. And you get into this freaking mess. And some places have nurses do these callbacks, but I think the physician still must take responsibility for this work, even if it's delegated out. And blood cultures, you know, I've seen some colleagues order a blood culture on a kid or something like that and send them out. I definitely agree with Greg. You need to put on the chart and put the ball into their court. Call us for the result of your culture in 24 hours so that it's not solely relied upon by some policy or procedure that doesn't work. We're there 24 hours a day. You can call us because we can't find you most of the time. Somebody's taken down a wrong phone number. The phone number's a lie. The address is a lie. There's got to be some patient responsibility here. I agree. And that the thing that you mentioned as far as documenting, that's a caveat. Any more? Another one Greg might find kind of interesting is you have highlighted on previous issues the perils and pitfalls of TIAs and CVAs and TPAs. I re-highlighted those in the lecture, but also there was one interesting case where a person had a TIA. The emergency physician consulted the neurologist. They agreed to let the patient go, and the patient, of course, had a CVA days later and then sued. The initial case was a finding for the doctor's defendants. Then the patient appealed on the basis of informed consent. The patient claimed, you could have discharged me and followed me as an outpatient, or you could have admitted me and diagnosed my carotid stenosis and fixed it before my CVA. And the court agreed with that. They said, yes, there were different ways to do this. You didn't tell him the different choices and ways. And the court then on appeal found for the patient. I thought that was kind of interesting. Well, it's interesting that he had a carotid stenosis because as far as I'm concerned, when a TIA comes in, if you're going to look down the road at what we can fix and what we can help, number one, I think they probably all, unless there's some good reason, ought to leave on aspirin. Number two, what's their heart look like? Then in regular sinus rhythm, what's their echo look like? And what is their Doppler of their neck look? And I think that that's becoming more and more the standard. Now, The third time a TIA comes in, and you've recently done those other studies, there's probably nothing you're going to do. But it is interesting with a carotid stenosis patient. Now, there's not very many of those. That may be 1% or 2% of all the TIAs come in. But you know what? It is a treatable cause of the disease or a potentially treatable cause of the disease. 
And we probably ought to have a more uniform approach in the country as what we're going to do with TIA patients. Well, you know, the American Heart Association has a black and white recommendation that all of those patients be admitted to the hospital. So I think you are swimming upstream if you want to be more aggressive and say, well, we'll send you out on an aspirin, come back tomorrow, and we'll do these other tests. Although that may sound reasonable, you're not necessarily so sure those things are going to happen the next day. And I think, honestly, a TIA is a big deal. We're talking about the brain here, and I'd rather have a heart attack than have a stroke. And I think that the idea of being, well, you know, kind of cavalier about this, I know what the numbers are and I know what the odds are. And I know about they have a rating system. You probably know this, Mel, for determining the risk. There's actually a couple of them now and none of them are perfect. So you can risk stratify by the type and the duration of the TIA and then try and work out their probability of stroking out in the next day, week or month. But none of them are perfect. See, I'm with you. I don't want to take that responsibility on. Maybe I can't fix it by admitting the patient, but I would feel better if we, as Greg said, check a Doppler of their carotids very quickly and check their heart and see if there was something potentially reversible. Sending home these patients is like sending home somebody with bad, unstable angina, as far as I'm concerned. All the rating systems also look at the symptoms you have. If what you've actually got are inability to move a limb or limbs on one side of the body, that's a much higher probability of going on to stroke in the next 30 days than if it's a small amount of dizziness or something like that. And so it's not just the onset and the time and all that kind of stuff. It is more complex. It takes the symptoms. But my view of it is if you know that they've just had, you can call up the Doppler you know they're in sinus rhythm, you know their neck vessels are clear, at that point, I think sending them home is fine. But that's sort of a retrospective view of the thing. You know what the real potentially treatable lesions are. I just came from Kaiser a couple years ago. And what you just mentioned, Greg, is kind of how we did it. We looked at the rhythm and then we would do an acute study of the carotids and there wasn't much else that you were going to fix emergently. And some of those would go... What I took from this case, though, is I'm definitely, and you've highlighted this in past issues, is going to communicate with the patient and let them know the different ways that this is approached so that they're aware. And then I guess if a patient said, no, I want to be in the hospital, I would take this back to the consultant and share it both ways. The other two areas that really I've been seeing a lot of, first, spinal abscesses, epidural abscesses, and cord syndromes, and these tend to be universally lost by the physician. The typical course is the patient comes back over and over and over and gets a variety of imaginative diagnoses. There's often a prejudice against these patients because it's more prominent in drug abusers, drug seekers, and so they get labeled and dismissed. Those I'm seeing more and more often. The other area that I'm seeing really frequently is necrotizing fasciitis, which is a very difficult diagnosis and not that common. These tend to come out in favor of the defendant physician. There seems to be an understanding of juries and courts that this is hard to find in its early stages and explodes, and they don't tend to hold the physician liable that often. I'm glad you brought this up, Greg, because this is a common problem for all of us. We spent the better half of an issue of Risk Management Monthly on the spinal epidural abscess. There is more of it around than there used to be. It is in an unpopular group of patients, no question about that. And the other thing is, I think when you pick up the chart, there is an innate prejudice when that chart says back pain. 
And the thing that I found on most of the cases that I've been involved with is not doing the usual history and physical the way you would with most patients. If you actually look, if you actually check them for perirectal sensation, movement of the feet, sensation, that sort of thing, those people don't get into trouble. It's when they're back again for their fifth time and somebody says, just give them a shot and get them out of here. Those are the cases that are a problem. Yes, we have beaten the spinal epidural abscess into the ground. But in the unlikely case that somebody's listening for the first time, there are a couple of things to specifically be aware of in terms of making you concerned. Number one of them, and most people don't do this, is to press over the spinous processes of the back. And if you find one that is tender, that is not consistent with musculoskeletal problem. And spinal epidural abscesses statistically are more in the thoracic spine area, which is the least common area you would have problem with your back. Neck, yes. Low back, yes. Thoracic spine, no. no. And the other thing is, is that some people may disagree, but SED rates tend to be substantially elevated in these cases. So if you're trying to make the diagnosis, you can't really go from, well, you may have it, let's get an MRI. So there's got to be some kind of data accumulated that suggests that your diagnosis is correct. By the time the diagnosis is obvious, well, that person probably had two or three visits to another doctor before them, and those are the doctors that are in trouble. By the way, Rick, I'm not sure that that's completely true. If you present to me and you have pain over a process and a neurologic finding, I'm going to get the MRI. I'm not talking about people who have neurologic findings. That's too easy. I'm just talking yeah. about back pain, period. See, I don't think it is too easy because when I actually look at these charts, these people have been in multiple times, and we view the multiple visitor negatively when really what he's doing is giving us a chance to pick up on the disease we didn't get the first time. And I look at these charts all the time, and the exams, the simple stuff, that cost you no money, the examinations frequently aren't done. They actually examined them. I think they pick up most of these things. Now, i got to disagree with you also on the SED rate because Richard Dayo, who is Mr. Backpain, published stuff, and it's more than 10 years old now, but maybe as many as 20, 25% of these people with proven spinal epidural abscesses, their ESRs are not very abnormal. You're expected to be 100, but they're not. They're 20, 30. So I get anxious about that. We see a lot of these at county, as you can imagine, because we have a large IV drug-using population. So if you've got a risk factor and you've got the back pain, I just MRI you, because how many MRIs can you buy for a $5 million lawsuit? A lot. So you don't want to miss this. And you certainly don't want a patient to go home and not be able to feel their screwed and we when they want to. So I think you can do a lot of MRIs in patients at risk and still be cost-effective. Mel, you have a patient population which is almost unique in the United States. And it's hard to generalize the L.A. County population to Keokuk, Iowa. And I think that a lot of our listeners out there are not at a place like the county and it is a tougher call. You're right. When the guy's got track marks on his arms and a painful spot in his mid-thoracic spine, I think that's an easy call. But even if you're in Keokuk or if somebody's got diabetes, if they've been recently instrumented, if they've got fever with their back, I think there's a series of red flags you can use. And when they've got those red flags, I don't really care about the serum, whatever test you want to get. I just want the MRI. You want the answer. And the point is, when it's a yes or no question... Because really, it's yes or no. Does the surgeon want to do something, yes or no? Then get a yes or no test. 
Well, that's easy to say, guys, but I do think that you need to kind of have an index of suspicion that you've accumulated in the assessment of this patient. And you're right. I think every patient needs to have the temperature circled who has a back pain complaint. If that temperature is over 100.4, that's a fever, the last I heard. But if you don't make the connection and connect the dots, then you're going to be considered to be not doing a careful exam. And with regards to the SED rate, most of these cases... Not all, but most of these cases, it will be elevated. So there is some kind of grade process because most of us don't have MRI available 24-7. But our hospital, it was six or seven hours a day kind of thing. That's it. Yeah, well, we don't either. And one more point, if I could. It's not just the drug users that are the problem. And as Mel pointed out, these are increasing in frequency. It is about instrumentation. It's even about bladder infections. Bladder infections have been defined as a source of these back infections as well, or a cellulitis or some other kind of low-grade infection that you don't think much of. All right, I'm off my soapbox with regards to this <laughs> diagnosis. Thank you very much. Okay, Greg the Younger, what's your well, next uh, topic? Well, that covers most of them. I did go over how in a variety of states the malpractice caps are being challenged on constitutional basis. And the lawyers are becoming increasingly successful at defeating these caps for a variety of reasons. The main reasons are that you are treating older people the same as younger people with your caps, which is not giving them equality. There's another argument that's being used that says the legislature cannot dictate to a court what it's going to do. That's separations of powers in the United States. The president has his job, the legislature has theirs, and the courts have theirs, and one is not allowed to tell the other necessarily what to do. So those are a couple of the unique arguments. Another one that's been used is that when you enforce a cap, then the patient hasn't necessarily gotten their right to a trial by jury. They're getting tried by a legislature. So those are kind of three arguments that lawyers are using to defeat cap laws. So I brought that forth as interesting. Actually, there's a fourth reason as well. When these caps were established, like particularly in California, we've had a cap forever. And the cap is $250,000. And one of the allegations has been, well, fine, when this cap was established, $250,000 was a lot of money. You could buy a house for $250,000 in California when that cap was established. Rick, in Flint, Michigan, you could buy a house for $50,000 today. So move on. Yeah. yeah. You could buy a block of houses there. I saw this horrible program. I saw this horrible program on TV a couple of days ago about Cincinnati where they were selling houses for $5,000, but it was just horrible. But in any case, there's been no cost of living adjustments made for 20 years. And that's been one of the other challenges to these caps that have never been modified over time. You're right. Actually, California is progressive. They had built kind of an inflation escalation factor in there. And that's why the California law is held up over time. Louisiana had a case that brought that very argument that you said, Rick, that said, hey, we're still working on caps from 20 years ago and this isn't right. And they defeated the cap in Louisiana based on that. Just talking about what's happening in the legislatures and the courts at this point in time, there are two states, Texas and Georgia, which have elevated or changed what the standard is that they have to meet to show negligence in the emergency department. Basically, it's become a willful and wanton standard in Texas and in Georgia. 
And there have been some cases upheld, I know, by the Texas Supreme Court, which basically said, yeah, that's right, that it's not the same as going into a doctor's office or a voluntary relationship. And so the standard in Texas is you've got to screwed up big time for them to bring an action against you. That's a great point, and I also brought that up. That's where you want to go. Instead of trying to get caps established, you want the language of malpractice to change. And the usual terms are more likely than not for malpractice. More likely than not, this happened. And states that are progressive, like Georgia and Texas, are getting the language changed to a preponderance of the evidence, kind of overwhelmingly. Exactly. It's more than just, well, flip a coin here. The other thing is that they're starting to realize that in emergency medicine, we have to take everybody. The standard line, if your mama don't like you and the police are now tired of you, you can always go to the emergency department. Well, that's a different business relationship than going to a doctor electively and making a contract for a service, you know, a removal of a gallbladder or something like that. This is a different kind of situation. And I think those states which are using the willful and wanton standard or the careless disregard standard have really done us a lot of good. And I'm glad that those Supreme Courts have supported us. Well, it's hard to think of Texas as a progressive state, but when they changed their threshold in terms of culpability, there was a rash of people going to get licenses in Texas such that the department that handles the licensure of physicians got way behind because their suits plummeted with this new standard. And the trade-off, too, was they got a lot more doctors than other places where people are leaving. Where they were going to was they were going to Texas. They were leaving Florida. They were leaving these other states, which are traditionally a mess. See, we always think that this was done for emergency medicine. It wasn't at all. This was to help expand the coverage for orthopedics, general surgery, neurosurgery, and getting these guys to come in on literally train wreck cases, motorcycle accident cases, all that sort of stuff, because they basically went to the state legislatures and said, look, if you want us to get out of bed in the middle of the night and come in and take care of some 19-year-old motorcyclist who doesn't have insurance anyway, at least give us some reasonable protection here. And you're right, Rick, it actually did drop the insurance profile in Texas and increase the number of those people willing to take call. And so it kind of fit. And the public's benefit in this is tremendous because no matter what system you have, if a doc ain't coming in, he's no good at all. Yeah, also the other specialty is the OBGYN who, you know, someone has no prenatal care and shows up. You want him to step up to the plate. It's almost kind of a quasi-semi Good Samaritan attitude coming into the legislature. What they're realizing is they got a big problem on their hands, and this coverage issue, I don't know, this was never seemed to be as big a problem when I was young in the business, but that's now the specialists on the outside. They're not interested in living up to that Hippocratic oath about taking call and coverage. Basically, it's screw yourself. We're not coming in. Greg, when you were young in the business, they had barely discovered penicillins. It was a bitch getting somebody to come in to just to take care of Lincoln. If we'd had a decent neurosurgeon, he might have been okay. We couldn't get one. I called everywhere. I guess I'd finished. I saw a unique defense that I would share with you for a physician. This physician saw a middle-aged man who had chest pain radiating to his neck and arm and got a chest x-ray and EKG and let him go. Of course, he was found later dead. The discharge diagnosis was pharyngitis, carpal tunnel syndrome, and diffuse chest pain, which was kind of creative. So it seemed like a definite loser. 
before trial when they tried to contact the physician, they found out he wasn't insured, so his attorney quit, and the ED physician quit medicine as well. He left and went to Italy and became a monk, so if you really need to dig deep for a defense, I would say drop your insurance, quit your job, run away, and start praying. Yeah, I like that. I like that. That's good. Well, listen, Greg, we need more guys like you who are monitoring this system and following it through. I'm sure your talk will get great reviews, and we look forward to having you at further occasions here on Risk Management Monthly. It was my pleasure. We forgot to do Wine of the Month, and uh, we don't have time for it, but a number of you have asked about beer. So I did a quick Google search. What is the cheapest beer in America? And here's the answers, ladies and gentlemen. Natty Light is one person's suggestion. It's gross, and you should spend a few extra dollars on Bud Light. Another person said there are quite a few cheap beers, usually pretty bad regional brands. In Iowa, we have Pig's Eye, which is 8 bucks for a case of bottles. The caps are like razors, and if you tried to remove them barehanded, you'd lose your hand. Another person said he believes that it is Pap's Blue Ribbon that Rick has talked about in the past, with Lone Star coming in a close second. Oh, and don't forget Milwaukee's Best and Bush Natural Light. All cheap and all disgusting. Thank you very much, Yahoo Answers. Ladies and gentlemen, that's all we have time for this month. We'll talk to you next month on Risk Management Monthly. Bye for now.